0: Our reading today is from the fifth chapter of First Peter, verses one through five. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Well, good morning, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Um, I, I've said things like this before, but I just have that sense this morning. There, there are Sundays where we gather, where we, get, where, where we get through the portion of the service where we're, we've prayed together, and we've heard the word, and we've sung truths, and we've sung prayers, and there's part of me that just wants to go, Can we, let's just be done and enjoy that. Now that's not going to happen today, um, but, there, but there is such a sense, and I so appreciate what Dave shared, there's such a sense in which if you're, if you're looking at the words that we're singing, if you're considering the words that are being read for us, if you're proclaiming in song the things that we're entering into, it is full of the gospel. And so it is a privilege this morning to be able to extend that as we look at scripture together. And so if you have your Bible, turn if you would to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to go back to 1 Peter 5, um, but we're going to begin this morning in 1 Peter, uh, I'm sorry, in First Timothy chapter 3. And by the way, my name is Jonathan Mosher. Um, it is my privilege to open the word for you this morning, and so uh, 1 Timothy 3 is where we'll be. Today we're coming to um, our last sermon in a series that we're doing on the foundation of the church. And so what we've been doing is really looking at what, what it is that God has established for us uh, in the local body. Why is it that we gather? What is it that we believe? What is God doing in our midst? Why has he called us? And as we've been looking at those things, our hope and our prayer is that you're getting a sense of where we're headed. It's easy when you look around and you see this number, this number of people gathered to forget that we are a new and young church. And we really are. Uh, And so what we've been doing over these last several weeks has been trying to take uh, take a moment to stop and consider what the Word says so that we can really see and plan for where we're going, that we want to be focused uh, in the direction that God would lead us, and we want to foundationally be established in a very strong way uh, in what God intends for us. And so the questions that we've been addressing over the last several weeks are, what makes a church? What is it that actually defines what a church is? And so in week chapter one, we looked at Acts uh, chapter two, uh, where, where it really talks about the birth of the church that the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, that he indwelled the believers, that Peter preaches this very simple message and that hearts and lives are transformed and changed, that people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they follow in obedience through the step of baptism, that they're added to the church. And so what we realize through that is the foundation of the church is that God the Father in his sovereignty and in his goodness has established the church to be his means of proclamation, his means of communion, His means of of devotion one to another and to Him, that through Jesus Christ, He brings those who are far off and calls people to Himself and draws us into His family, and that He indwells us with the Holy Spirit to accomplish His Word and His work. In the second week, we looked at conversion. What does it mean? What is salvation? What do we mean when we use the term saved? What do we actually mean by that? And so we talked about the idea that really what that is is a justification uh, in our own life that happens, that our sin is removed, that we're given God's righteousness, that we were utterly dead in trespasses and sins, unable to respond, unable to pursue, unable to even desire God. And in his goodness, before time began, he set his love and his passions on us, that he chased us down, that he saved us to himself, that he made us a new people, that he gave us life. And the two weeks following that, we talked about the two ordinances or sacraments of the church, which are communion and baptism. And so we defined that what a church is doing, what a church actually is defined by, is the proclamation, the teaching of God's word, and the right application of those ordinances, baptism and communion. Last week we talked in depth about membership. What is the local church? Why do we need it? What does it mean to be a part of the local church? Is it really necessary? Do we really need that? And what we said ultimately is that God uh, called us to identify in in a covenantal sense to a local body that he's given us a body to which we belong, he's given us pastors to whom we are responsible, and that he's placed those in leadership who ultimately are going to have to answer before God for the way that they interacted with and shepherded God's people. And so what we said is that the local church and membership in it is not just a good idea, but that it's a necessary and essential part of the Christian's life. And so today what we're looking at is the leadership of the local church, namely, very specifically, eldership. Now the New Testament puts a great deal of importance on establishing proper leadership because as we talked about last week, if if, if the bride of Christ is the church, then we want to take good care of that bride. That God has placed under shepherds, he's placed elders, overseers within the church to care for, protect, and love the body that he's brought together. And so there's a great deal of importance, a great stress that's put on the importance of that proper leadership. And so just like membership, elder is a term that comes with all kinds of preconceived notions. I mean, for some of you, you have an idea when you hear that word of a a group of very old men with long beards who sit around in a back room making very important decisions and talking about very deep things. Right? Some of, for some of you, you think of a board made up of CEOs and businessmen. Maybe that's been your experience of the church. The elders are not necessarily those who do the work of the ministry. They're not necessarily those who do the preaching. They're not necessarily those who care for the congregation. But maybe in your experience, what you've seen is a group of businessmen, people who are handling the affairs of the church in a financial sense or in, in a very high oversight kind of way. And yet for others, just like membership... When you hear the word elder, you think about a source of heartache. That your experience of eldership, your experience maybe of pastors in the local church has been riddled with public failings, with moral failures that have led to men needing to step down from the positions that they had. The heartache and the questions that arise as a result of those things. Or maybe your experience on a local level is uh, is much more defined by the infighting that happens between that leadership, that there's constant power plays and politics going on. And so what we want to do in this morning is to look in a very clear way at the biblical template for eldership. And so, in a lot of ways, what we're going to do in this sermon is is going to be very technical. We're working through both the qualifications and the responsibilities of what eldership is and who is called to be an elder. And then we'll see at the very end of this sermon how all of this plays into a picture of the gospel. So, first, I want to draw your attention to the qualifications of an elder. Number one, the qualifications of an elder. And this is what leads us to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're not going to spend a lot of time here in chapter 3, but we do need to look at it. And here's how it begins. The saying is trustworthy, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the New Testament is going to use a lot of different words to define this very same office. And so what you'll see as you read throughout Scripture, depending on your translation of the Bible, you'll find a lot of different words that are used to define the role of an elder. And so you see that word pastor, you see the word elder, you see the word overseer, you see shepherd, in cases you see the word bishop, and just understand this, there are three primary Greek words that are used to translate uh, this one notion, but in nearly every case that we see in scripture, what you realize is that all three of those terms are referencing the same office. And we don't have a lot of time to go into that this morning, but I'm throwing that out there for your consideration because I realize some of you may come from more mainline denominational backgrounds where you had a bishop that oversaw a particular area, a particular number of churches. Maybe you grew up Presbyterian, and so you actually had a presbytery to which your church uh, belonged. Maybe you grew up Catholic, and so when you think of the hierarchy of the church, immediately your mind goes to the Pope. Just understand this, and I'm happy to discuss this further later on. Understand this. The Bible does not speak specifically to those ideas. Instead, what you see consistently through Scripture is eldership. That many of these terms define the very same role. The Bible doesn't treat these as distinct offices. It uses these terms interchangeably. And so here's what Paul begins with in 1 Timothy. He says, if a man desires this office, he desires a good thing. And we need clarification around that because many of you have heard a passage like this preached in different ways, and maybe what's the instruction that's been put in in front of you is that every man ought to desire the office of an elder. I don't think that's what this is teaching here, because there's all kinds of roles and opportunities and means of service within the church that are given to us. We'll talk about those at later points, but for instance, in the book of Acts, we're given the, the role of deacons, those who are to serve within the church. They meet very particular needs, and they care for people, and they meet the actual physical needs of people within the church in very specific areas of responsibility. and other areas that the church is addressed where people who have no intentions or designs of being an elder are called to teach up and train those who are younger in the faith. And so we think of 1 Timothy and Titus in particular when we think of that instruction. That men and women within the church have all kinds of roles and responsibilities to use the giftedness that God has given them for the edification, the building up of the church in a particular place. But the very first qualification of an elder that we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that he desires it. And that lines up with what we read in 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning, where it says that elders are those who are to shepherd willingly, not under compulsion. These aren't people who are doing this against their will. These are people who have a sense of calling from God, a sense of desire for the work of the ministry, for the formal work of the ministry, I should clarify, within the context of the church. And so that's the very first qualification that they desire. Look at verse 2 of 1 Timothy 3. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And again, we need to stop. Because that word, that phrase, rather, above reproach has all kinds of implications tied up within it. That, that the, the phrase that's translated in your Bibles, above reproach, is actually a legal term. And it literally means one who is innocent in the eyes of the law. Now, this doesn't mean that an elder, a pastor, and by, those, by the way, I'm going to use those words interchangeably this morning. It doesn't mean that an elder, a pastor, is, is uh, sinless. All right, that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about someone who never sins and never makes a mistake and never fails in some sort of way. But what it's saying is that there is a particular honor that marks the life of an elder. That when accusations of of any kind of serious nature are made, all you need to do is look at the evidence of that person's life and look at the way that they continue to act to realize that that accusation could not be true of them. That is the call of an elder. Understand this. Pastors don't always do that. Pastors fail and they fall. They sin, sometimes to great consequence. But the calling, the standard, the the prerequisite of an elder is to be above reproach. So what does that mean? I would argue it means at least three things. It means first of all that they have to be honorable. That their life doesn't bring dishonor to the gospel or to the church. That their life has a sense of of honor about it, where they're not participating in things or doing things or saying things that would bring reproach upon the gospel or the church. Second, I would argue that their lives need to be consistent or integrated. That a pastor, an elder, doesn't act differently in the church than he does outside of it. There in a very real sense is a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of approach to an elder. That you're able to see his life in the public ministry on a Sunday morning or in the formal occurrences of the church. And if you were to see him interacting in other areas or instances of his life, if you were to see him out at a ball game or you were to see him at work or you were to see him with his family, you would see this integration of his faith and his life. And third, his life needs to be imitable. That he is worthy of imitation, that his life is an example worth following. In other words, why would I want to follow this guy who says these things? Is the gospel that he proclaims actually shaping and changing him and transforming him? Is it actually molding who he is as an individual within his work, with his family, if he's married and has a family? Is this actually somebody worth imitating? And then finally, this term above reproach is really a category heading for everything that's to follow after that. Above reproach in terms of the way you interact with your family. Above reproach with the way that you interact with those who know Jesus Christ and those who don't know Jesus Christ. Above reproach in the manner of lifestyle that an elder holds, the substances that he partakes in, and all those sorts of things. And we'll get to all that in a moment, but this is really a category heading. And so look then what it says, the very next phrase in verse 2, it says this, "...the husband of one wife." Now again, we need to put some clarification around this because the point of this is neither that the elder must be married nor that the elder must not be divorced. Let me just give a little bit of background around what that means. So the first point is this, or rather the point is not that an elder must be married. I mean, remember here who's writing. This is Paul. Was Paul married? No, he wasn't. So if that was the standard, Paul has just disqualified himself from ministry. That's not what Paul is doing here. But what he's, but what he's saying is uh, that, that if one is married, they need to be the kind of man who is a one-woman man. They don't have eyes for anybody else. Their eyes are not wandering. Their heart is not wandering. They're not pursuing other people. They're not, they're not flirtatious. They're not men who are acting inappropriately outside of the bounds of their marriage. And furthermore, we know that the requirement can't just be that these people be married because Paul's gonna later say that he had the gift of singleness and he's gonna say, I wish that many of you, like me, had that gift so that you could give your life even more fully to the work of the ministry that God has called you to. So just as a for instance, One of my heroes, if I can use that term loosely, one of my heroes of the faith is a man named John Stott. Uh, in fact, my oldest son, uh, Leo, his middle name is, is Stott, named after uh, John Stott. So that's the kind of uh, appreciation I have for this guy's life and ministry and the kind of impact uh, that he had on me. And John Stott was, uh, was, it was an interesting character in 20th century Christianity for a lot of reasons. First, just because of the voluminous uh, amount of writing that he did, the impact that he had on the church around the world, but also because he did all of that as a single man. So just understand this, single men. This is not a disqualification for you. And second, I made a comment in passing. I just want to expand a little bit on it. I don't think the point of this verse is to say that someone who is an elder must have never been divorced. Now, that's something over which a lot of Christians would disagree, and different churches would hold different perspectives on those things. But all I mean by that is this. I don't think that necessarily a divorce is inherently a disqualification for a man from ministry. There's very little evidence for that, if any, scripturally. And I think those sorts of decisions, as they affect the church, are best made case by case rather than as a broad sweeping rule. So you can ask me about that later if you have further questions. I'd love to uh, have that conversation with you. But I want there to be clarity so that we understand the sorts of things that we're talking about as we read this text. But the idea of a one-woman man, that he is married, if if he is married, he is devoted to his wife, that he loves her well, that he serves her well, that he cares for her well, that he leads her well, that she is his everything in terms of relationships in this life. Continue to read. He is to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. And there's a theme that emerges in those four descriptions. And here's what he's saying. An elder needs to be somebody who is clear-thinking, solid in their beliefs. This is somebody who is thinking clearly they're not foolish, they're not impetuous, they are generous with their lifestyle, and that term hospitable as it's used doesn't just mean that they open up their home to allow other people in, though that may be an element of it, but understand that this word hospitable is different than the word fellowship. Fellowship means we get together with other believers, we spend time with them, uh, we eat together, we talk together, we enjoy our time together. But hospitality, in the biblical sense, is specifically referencing the way that this person interacts with the lost. And by the way, that necessitates that an elder actually interact with the lost. So if all you know is Christians, and all you interact with is Christians, and your whole circle is Christians, and you can't name or talk to people who do not believe the way that you believe, this is probably a disqualifying factor for you. And next he says they're able to teach. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this other than to say that this does not mean that every man who becomes an elder needs to be able to hold the the attention of a congregation for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes. That's not what we're talking about here. He's not necessarily talking about the public preaching on a Sunday morning of the gospel, but here, it, it can play out in all different realms. So it might be uh, in a smaller group. It might be one-on-one. Certainly it will include those uh, who, like myself, have the responsibility uh, and the privilege of being able to declare and preach the gospel. But here's what he's saying. Someone who is an elder is a, has an ability to teach, which means that they can espouse sound doctrine and explain faith. that you understand the faith that you claim, that you know the word, that you can recognize falsehood and address falsehood. Those are the qualifications of what it means to be able to teach. Third, look what it's, uh, or rather verse three, look what it says, not a drunkard. All right, I mean, you may not think that um, Paul needs to throw this one in here, but maybe there's something happening uh, in the church that points out the, the necessity for this, but here's what he's saying. The elder can't be a drunk. Right? You cannot have a life-controlling addiction and be an elder. You cannot be given over to a substance in that way. Then he says this, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. So this is not an individual who's going to major on the minors. This is not someone who's always spoiling for a fight. This is not someone who's authoritarian and is going to lord their position over other people. This is someone who's not a bully, but is gentle. This is one of those elements that again gets so lost in the wash of the discussion of eldership because the tendency of individuals is either to be bold, outspoken, loud, or to be so gentle as to be demure and passive. But understand when he uses this word gentle in this context, what he's saying is they care for the sheep well. Well there is a gentle and approachable manner by which they interact with others. And finally this, not a lover of money. So these are not men who are greedy and chasing money. These are not people who are trying to attain this position to garner more possessions or more uh, wealth to themselves. These are not good people who are going to abuse their authority uh, to, to somehow uh, gain for themselves. And then look what it says in verse 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if this man cannot lead his family, and if he cannot serve his family, and if he cannot care for his family, how can he lead, serve, and care for the church? In other words, once again, there's an integration between his faith and the way that he cares for his family. That your ability to love and lead and care for your family are an indicator of an integrated faith. And verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Here's what that means. This man has had time to prove himself, to be observed, to be affirmed in his calling and in his giftedness. You can see his lifestyle and know that this is an individual who meets these criteria. This is exactly the reason why Paul is later going to state that you ought not to lay hands on elders quickly. That you take your time in that process because you need to be able to observe their manner of life to see if their life is worthy of imitation. And verse 7 Moreover, with all of that said, in addition to that, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so here's what that means. When those outside the church find out that this man is an elder at his local congregation, they should not be shocked. They shouldn't be able to point to his business practices, to point to his family, to point to the way that he speaks when he's out on the golf course or when he's in a business meeting and say, that guy is an elder? But instead, this is someone who is well thought of, respectable, honorable. So now understand that what he's describing here, and I don't want you to miss this. I realize we've just moved through a lot of Scripture relatively quickly. Maybe not quickly enough for you, but relatively quickly, we've moved through a lot of Scripture. And here's what I want you to take away from this. First, that you understand that these are the qualifications, the prerequisites of one who would desire to be an elder, so that you can have those things in your mind as we move forward as a church. That at the point when we begin to put elder candidates forward, you're able to see their life, to know them, to ask them questions, and to test them based on these standards. And second, and, and just as importantly, here's what I don't want you to miss about this, understand that Paul here is not describing a super-Christian He is not describing someone who is so far above and beyond the standard or expectation of normal, everyday Christianity that it can hardly be attained. What he's describing here, aside from the ability to teach, these are the markers of what it is to be a Christian. But for the elder, these are things that need to be a prerequisite, not just a goal. I cannot say the word prerequisite to save my life this morning. Forgive me. So just as a side note, the reason that we spent so much time last week talking about membership and the importance of it and talking about all those things is because before we even come to the topic and the conversation of eldership, understand that elders are to first and foremost be members of the church. And what happens when you begin to break down in your mind the relationship between elders and members is there starts to be a stratification that happens where either the leadership of the church or the members of the church begin to view those in leadership and authority as if they are far off and distant, as if they are so far above the behavior of the life of the member, or vice versa. Leadership gets so haughty and proud in their own position and perhaps their own accomplishment that they begin to think of themselves as better. And the very first thing that you lose when that happens is true shepherding of people. Over and over and over again through the course of church history, as men in positions of leadership have fallen, it is inevitably connected to those ideas. That they begin to think so much of themselves that they lose first their identity in Jesus Christ and second their identity as a part of a local congregation So elders are to serve as an example of mature faith within the church. So those are the qualifications. What are the responsibilities? Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. It's in your, uh, if it's in your worship folder, if you don't have a Bible with you. But 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to read the first two verses. Which says this: So I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I mean, notice Peter's words in this verse because they are so dripping with pastoral language. You see the firmness of a shepherd and you see the gentleness of a shepherd, but notice the language that Peter uses as he writes this. He says, uh, first of all, he says, I am exhorting the elders, plural. Understand that the call to eldership is a plural responsibility. And all you have to do is do a quick word search in your Bible for every time the word elder shows up, and what you find is one of two things. Either it's listing elder singularly, where it's addressing the actual qualifications of an elder, or it addresses them in a plural fashion, where it is talking about the leadership of a local church. The instruction that is given to lead the church is not given to one man. It is given to a group of called, qualified men. And in the same way that last week we talked about the dangers and the pitfalls of individualism, in your view of the church, understand that those same pitfalls exist for the leadership of a church. For a lot of reasons, that's true. I mean, one, no one person can bear all of that responsibility. Even in a congregation our size, there's just too many people to properly care for and love and shepherd than one person can rightly do. And so practically what that means is as a young new church, we are moving at a pace that we believe is right and appropriate for where we are towards plural leadership. And not only because the weight cannot be carried by an individual, but because also, in a true biblical sense, you are struck with the consistency of the way that the Bible addresses leadership in the plural and all of the truisms that go around that. That in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That as you have many people caring for the needs and shepherding the flock, and also, as brothers, iron sharpening iron, there's accountability built into that relationship. And you're also struck, as you continue to look, through this, look at this through Scripture, at, at the consistent lack of hierarchical structure. The only hierarchy that you find beyond elders is the specific reference to Jesus as the chief shepherd. So understand what that means. Ultimately, Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Like, do you follow the implications of that? that your loyalty and your heart is first and foremost for the chief shepherd, for the great shepherd. And that God has appointed and called under shepherds to care for his congregation locally. And notice the very first call that he gives to those elders in verse 2. It is shepherding. Now that's just a fascinating word for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's fascinating because most of us don't have a lot of context for what shepherding actually is. And if you've ever actually been around sheep for any length of time, what you realize is that they are smelly and they are dumb. And I say this as a kid who grew up in the city and had occasion on a a handful of times to uh, go out to a ranch where my father grew up in Wyoming and actually see sheep in that environment. And the fluffy, beautiful wool that is pictured for us all the time is not what you actually experience when you see sheep, they reek and they're dumb. And so understand what that means about us. Us, by the way. But the call to elders is to be shepherds. Notice he does not say that they are called to be CEOs of the church, they are not called to be professors of the church, they are not called to be motivational speakers to the church, though there are certainly elements of instructing and speaking and managing that are involved in this role, but the predominant responsibility is shepherding. So here's what that means. Eldership is not a boardroom position. It is a pastoral one. And even that word pastor comes from the idea of being a shepherd. It means that you are with the sheep, that your feet are on the ground and you're in the muck and the mire, that you smell like the sheep because you are constantly around them. That you know them intimately, that you know them well, that you are walking with them, that they know the sound of your voice, that there is a, an interaction, a rapport that exists. And notice as well that it says shepherd the flock that is among you. Right, So this goes back to what we talked about last week, the importance of identifying with a local church, that, that the elders are those who are going to give an account for those who are under their care, and, and, and on the converse side of that, as members of a church, there is a submission to that local authority that you're to shepherd those that are among your care. So here's what that means. It means that shepherd are with the sheep. That they defend the sheep when they're attacked, that they care for the needs of the sheep, that they bind up the sheep when they're wounded, that they pursue the sheep when they wander, that they correct the sheep when they're straying into dangerous territory. And how do they shepherd? I think there's at least three ways. If you like outlines and points, I got all kinds of stuff for you this morning. They shepherd by leading, protecting, and feeding. They lead, they protect, and they feed. First of all, they lead. So some of you come from a tradition, maybe one of those more hierarchical traditions, where there is one person in the church or maybe one person at the denominational level who makes all of the decisions and their word is final. And maybe that's a local church pastor or maybe it's a bishop or maybe it's something else, but there is one person who calls all the shots Questions will not be accepted, arguments will not be heard, and orders will be obeyed. So maybe that's your experience of the church, and so when you think of elders, maybe you think of it in that very same sort of context. Or some of you on the very opposite end of the spectrum, others of you grew up in a tradition where everything, and I mean everything, is done by vote. So this is the tradition that I grew up in where all of the major, any kind of major decision, any kind of decision that affects the congregation in any way is going to be put before the people and there's going to be a business meeting that may or may not end in tears. And at the end of that business meeting, we're all going to vote on something and then a decision is going to be made. But here's, here's my argument to you. I think the model that is laid out in Scripture is that the church is led by qualified men Who are devoting themselves to the study of the word, to devotion in prayer, to following the Holy Spirit's leading as they interact with the congregation. So they're not in an ivory tower making decisions, not realizing the effect or the impact that those decisions make. But in a very real sense, they are leading and caring for the congregation. And the pattern that we see in the words of one author is that people do not make elders. God makes elders. Elders recognize elders. And people affirm elders. And I think that's what we saw in Hebrews chapter 13 last week with that whole idea of submitting to leadership, right? There's an affirmation that's happening there. And understand that that doesn't mean there's a lack of accountability, I mean, all you have to do is read some more of Paul where he's speaking to the church and he says, look, I want all of you to be like the Bereans and search out the scripture to determine whether the things I'm saying are true and understand that that same standard needs to apply at the local church level, that the local church pastor or elders within a local congregation are not the final authority. The word is and leadership and elders within a local context only have authority to the extent that the Bible extends authority to them. And so hear that, and I'm, I'm putting myself out in saying this, understand that what I am inviting in saying that is as the leadership of this church is formed. and my role as pastor, and as God leads more people into leadership and into eldership, realize that what that means is you need to be in the word. And if or as there are things that come up that do not line up with the word, be responsible, and have those conversations with leadership. It is a gift to the body to have people who are in the word and know it. Second, shepherds are to protect. You could pull this argument from a lot of places, but I'll pull it from Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, if you read that chapter, what's happening is Paul is about to, is about to leave um, the Ephesian church. Uh, He's going to leave them and he's leaving the elders behind to care for the church. And so he calls the elders together and his charge to them is this. He says, look, do not shrink back from declaring and proclaiming the whole counsel of the word of God. Because after I leave, there will be wolves that rise up from among you that will draw people away from the gospel with twisted words. See, part of a shepherd, part of a pastor and elder's responsibility is to protect the flock. Realizing that there are people who come in with their own agendas and their own ideas with twisted theology and self-serving motives who would desire to draw people away from the gospel and to themselves. And again, this goes back to the importance of identity with the local church. First, so that there's clarity about who makes up that church what they believed, what they've lived out. And second, so that those in leadership realize who it is that they're going to give an account for. Because as wolves pop up in the context of the church, it is the responsibility of elders, of pastors, of shepherds to weed them out and send them on their way. Part of the care of the flock is protecting that flock from predators. And the only way that can happen is if elders are following faithfully the chief shepherd and submitting to the scripture and both boldly and gently applying that word to the flock. So we're to lead, protect, and finally, we're to feed. Some of your Bibles actually translate this this way in 1 Peter 5 two. It might actually say that they're to feed the flock. And so this is certainly an important element of what a shepherd does, Right? I mean, we 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 sang this uh, earlier when we we're talking about the idea that that we are to um, that we are to feast on the word. We sang this in the first verse of "Speak, O Lord," which says this: "Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness." I mean, this is the this is the call of what elders are to lead congregations into. And so loving shepherds lead their sheep to the food and provide for them. And that is why Paul, in the book of Titus, writes that elders must be able to teach, to declare good news, to debunk falsehood, to apply the word of Scripture to the lives of the people. So how do they do this? Look at verse 2. Continuing on, they are exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So first we had shepherding, and now we have oversight. And this is that balance that a lot of churches really struggle with. Shepherding has this very individual focus that you're caring for the flock, yes, but as one sheep individually wanders off, that a shepherd is going after that person and pursuing them. And that oversight is viewing the church as a whole, directing, and overseeing. And Peter says, do not do this eagerly. This is not for shameful gain. And just to put that in perspective, tying back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, understand that that gain for some might be financial. They view the church, or they view the body, or they view ministry as a means to gain money, as a platform for the sorts of things that they want to do. Or, even more often, it might be for the gain of his own ego. See, there's an insidious thing that happens in ministry. Where when people love you or respect you or think you're good at something and try to encourage you, it is easy to take those things in selfishly and pridefully. So Dave, this week, shared a quote with me Um, that I had never heard before. It's from David and Warren Wiersbe. Um, And I want to read this quote to you and just soak in these words, because this is a word particularly to elders and pastors, but really to anybody who is doing ministry for unsavory reasons. And here's what he says. When ministry becomes performance, then the sanctuary becomes a theater, the congregation becomes an audience, Worship becomes entertainment. And man's applause and approval becomes the measure of success. But when ministry is done for the glory of God, his presence moves into the sanctuary. Even the unsaved visitor will fall down on his face, worship God, and confess that God is among us. See, for the elder, for the pastor, the satisfaction of ministry ought to be in serving the living God and caring and loving his people. And too often, far too often, is in the applause and praise of individuals. Peter's final words in verse 3, not de- domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And just like last week with Hebrews chapter 13, this is one of those instructions that just at times weighs heavy on my heart. To be the kind of man worth imitating. But what I'm so thankful for in this instruction is that Paul didn't stop and say, imitate me. But He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That all of this comes back to our Savior. To utter and complete dependence on the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So why do we do this? Why would anyone want to be an elder? Why are these things in scripture? It's for the sake of the chief shepherd who gave himself for his people that Jesus, who is the true and good shepherd, became one of the sheep. And like a lamb that was led to slaughter, experienced the brutality of the cross to save and redeem his people, to draw together a church for himself, a bride for himself that he might be glorified and that his people may receive joy. See, the goal of the under-shepherd is to lead and protect and feed the congregation so that they may know better the great shepherd. That through the example of local church pastors, the people of God might say with the psalmist, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Let this be our prayer for what God would do in this congregation and in this body. Trusting that God will be faithful to provide as he's promised he will. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Thank you for the patience of people as we work through these things, as we talk through these things, as we proclaim the goodness of your word and what you intend for us. And God, our prayer as a church is that you would raise up those who you'd have to be elders. God, we pray that you would put the call on the hearts of men. those that are called and gifted, that they would desire to be, to be elders, not for, not for some sort of praise or for man's applause, but for the desire to care for and love your bride well. And God, I pray that in all of this, that you would do the work of bringing us around the chief shepherd. Let this not be about one man or any group of men, but let this be about you. And God, I pray that in this, As you you raise up leaders, I pray, God, that those leaders would be an example. An example to lead people to you. And, God, I thank you. I thank you that the work for all of this has been done on the cross already. That the work of redemption, the work of justification, the work of sanctification began. And all the work was completed. That all the work that was necessary for it was done on the cross. And I thank you that you as the great shepherd became one of the sheep. I thank you that you resurrected, that you sent your spirit, and that your spirit gave birth to the church. So God, bless us in this place and bless your church around the world. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.